0: Shannon you're an independent investigative reporter based in Boston and I am neither of those things (laughs) so I want to know what kinds of stories do you typically pursue?
2: Yeah. So uh, let's see, Nora. I'd say usually I'm looking for, you know, missing money, um, missing accountability. We usually try to find, you know, the people in power who are um, screwing people over, so to speak. Like if there's something wrong with a system, a big picture, those are kind of the hard hitting topics that, you know, attract me.
0: But every now and then there's a more abstract mystery that comes along and that challenges our preconceived notions of loss, of mourning, of closure, of what it means for someone we love to go missing. And Shannon, this feels to me like one of those stories. Mm,
2: Yeah, Nora, I think it is. Because for the last two years or so, while I was an investigative reporter at WBUR, I'd been speaking with a family here in Boston about the loss of their mother and wife a woman named Benin
0: and technically we the public we know what happened to Benin right her killing was covered in the local news here in Boston back in 2016 Mm -hmm. and even a few months after she died there were stories about the investigation but six years later we still have no idea what actually happened
2: yeah I mean we know what happened And we also have no idea what happened. Even though that sounds confusing, both of those things are true, Nora. This family has been through a lot. And for years, they've been trying to come to terms with Benin's absence. But it's really hard when there are still so many questions circling around what really happened to her the day she died.
0: What kinds of questions are circling?
2: Well, I mean, the overarching one is who killed Benin and why? Six years later, there have been no arrests in this case. The family really feels forgotten by law enforcement. And the family's asking more questions revolving around a theory that was generated in the community following Benin's death. A theory involving the police and a cover-up. And those questions deserve answers.
0: Welcome to Last Seen, our show about people, places, and things that have gone missing. From WBUR, Boston's NPR station, I'm Nora Sachs. And today, in part one of a three-part series, independent investigative reporter Shannon Dooling searches for a family's peace.
2: Benin Timothy didn't go missing, but it does feel like she disappeared. If you ask her husband, Andre, it's like she was here one minute and gone the
3: next.
2: We hadn't seen her for a while, he says, hadn't heard anything from her from 2 to 7 p.m. So we called her, she never picked up. He called her friends home, where she said she was going that day. And they said she never came. They also called the police. That was six years ago. And in many ways, that's when the journey of this family ended, and their individual journeys began. So this is the recorder. I'm just gonna sit this right in front of you, okay? The first time I met with the Timothy family, the pandemic was raging. Vaccines weren't yet a thing, and we were navigating this new world. It was January, 2021, and freezing in Boston. Huddling outside wasn't a good option. So we met in this echoey room next to a community center near the family's home. We wore masks and kept a distance. I'd just transitioned from a five-year stint covering immigration news and was now an investigative reporter on a range of topics. But it was my experience covering immigration that piqued my interest when a colleague passed me a tip. His friend was volunteering at a Boston nonprofit, helping this family, originally from Haiti. They wanted answers about what happened to their mom and wife. So we met in that echoey room and the family started telling me everything they remembered about losing Benin and their search for pieces of information ever since. There was Andre, the dad. He's 67. Andre and his two children, Nalissa, his daughter. She's 19 and soft-spoken.
3: Nelissa
2: Nelissa She'll have plenty to say later on about losing her mom and the questions she still has. Then there's Jeffy, Benin's son. He's 18. I try
1: to find the result of the autopsy, send an email and stuff like that. And the end call, when they called me back, they said that it's still an open case. They cannot give me the result. Until this day, we still got nothing.
2: Maybe we should start with what we do know. It was a little after 2 p.m. on a crisp Saturday afternoon in October. Benin was walking down Washington Street in Boston's Dorchester neighborhood, a place she'd called home for only three months. She was walking to visit with a friend who lived nearby. On her way, she stopped to buy an international calling card. It was the cheapest way to get in touch with her family back in Haiti. She popped into SKB's, a small store on the corner of Washington and Morse, a stop she'd made many times before, if the family was running low on milk or paper towels. The store is hard to miss. It's this bright terracotta, sort of burnt orange painted building, surrounded by beige apartment buildings and a beauty salon. It's the kind of place with cigarette cartons hanging above the cash registers. There's a red countertop where you can fill out your lotto numbers, and piles of unpacked boxes clogging the aisles. The calling cards are kept behind the register. Benin paid with cash. She walked out of the store and turned to her right to continue on her way. She never made it to her friend's house
0: was gunned down in broad daylight, just a horrific situation. This family had moved to the U.S. from Haiti just a few months ago in hopes of starting a new life. They survived
2: the deadly earthquake, only to lose their loved one to gun violence here. Tonight, her children and her husband spoke with our Carrie Cavanagh. Here in Boston, the place where Andre asked his wife to meet him with their children, where their children were now in school, where this family of four had finally reunited after nearly 10 years. They had made it through the toughest parts, survived the distance and the uncertainty. Life in Boston was supposed to be the realization of years of work and planning, and it vanished in an instant. Family pictures of Benin show a woman with a subtle but proud smile, rarely showing her teeth but sort of leading with her eyes. She's neatly dressed with colorful tops and skirts wearing a straw hat with a pink flower on the front. In one photo, she is leaning up against a shiny white car with Massachusetts plates in a tree-lined driveway. She's wearing a blazer and a skirt the color of cotton candy. Her hair is up, swept away from her face, and she's looking directly at what or who is in front of her. There's also a photo of Benin's son, Jeffy, when he was 12 years old, the year he lost his mom. He's wearing a red button-down shirt and blue tie. Now, he's 18 and bears a strong resemblance to his mom, her high cheekbones and vibrant eyes. He's a freshman in college, studying criminal justice. Somebody's got to make a difference, he told me. He remembers the last time he saw his mom. They had just gotten back from doing laundry.
1: Our clothes was kind of dirty. We just had, like, literally anything on. Like, we were just, like, goofing around and stuff like that. So we technically, I technically last seen my mom with, like, just a normal shirt and and a normal sweatpants, I think it was. And then
2: she went outside. That's when everything happened. They lost pieces of themselves that October day, scattered there on Washington Street, in between a three-story apartment building, a beauty salon, and the SKB Food Mart, which Jefty says he's avoided ever since.
1: We don't live far away from here, like, we be on the street almost all the time. So when I'm when I'm usually passing the street, I either just keep my head straight, because since my mom passed, i never been to the store, because it's kind of hard for me to stand exactly where my mom was shot. So every time I'm passing here, I just try to keep my head straight. Like, if I'm driving, I just keep my head straight up, not don't even look at it. Sometimes when it's just my dad driving and passing, i just be putting my head down or be on my phone. Like, I don't pay that much attention to it because I know if I do, I'm going to break.
2: This is Jeffy's reality. It has been for a few years now. Instead of grabbing dinner at the Jamaican spot or popping into one of the nearby stores in this stretch of his neighborhood, it's all sort of off limits. After the break, we'll hear more about Benin's life in Haiti.
0: mining for a green future five special episodes listen and follow on point wherever you get your podcasts did you kill marlene johnson
2: i think you're one of the first people to have actually asked
0: from wbur and zsp media this is beyond all repair Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while.
2: Do it anyway. Dig. Benin Timothy was born Benin Mascari on April 5th, 1980, in Petit Guave, Haiti. It's a small coastal town southwest of the capital, Port-au-Prince. It's known for white sand beaches and excellent seafood. Benin was one of six children, four sisters and a brother. She was just 21 when she met Andre, a man more than 20 years her elder. He was a delivery guy at the time in Port-au-Prince. And one day, their paths crossed when Benin was also in the city, selling a mix of anything she could get her hands on, really. Hair products, T-shirts, bracelets— the way André tells it, Benin had a vision of meeting her future husband while she was working. So when he showed up that day, making his delivery, Benin already knew. He was the one.
3: And André
2: remembers Benin as being a good woman. Kind. He said that uh,
3: since.
1: Since uh, him and my mom met in 2001, he said, it have been nothing but
2: good memories.
1: He said that he. That's Andre's
2: son, and Jefty, interpreting from Haitian Creole. So and Andre also says he and his wife respected each other. She was caring. Andre left for the U.S. in 2008. There was increasing political unrest in Haiti, rising food prices, tropical storms were pummeling the island. Jephte and his sister were only four and five years old. But André didn't see a pathway to survival in Haiti. Things were deteriorating. He wanted the chance to make a good living, to support his family. After first arriving in Florida, he ended up in Boston. It's home to the third largest Haitian community in the U.S., behind New York and Miami. The first wave of Haitian immigrants to the greater Boston area is believed to have started in the 1950s and 60s. A time when the U.S.-backed Haitian president, François Duvalier, known as Papa Doc, was growing more violent and oppressive. Many Haitians were drawn to Boston's educational institutions, and many stayed. As the traditional immigrant story goes, once a family member arrives in a new country and finds work, they pave the way for others. So there's a vibrant Haitian Creole-speaking community, especially in Boston's Dorchester neighborhood. That's one of the reasons Andre made his way here. The plan was to work, save money, and bring Benin and the kids to live with him. In 2016, that's what he did. At first, life in Boston was a shock for Benin and the kids. It was cold. Here's Jeffy. And we were just walking in the street and stuff like that. And I
1: had short on and she had a big jeans and a big jacket on. She was saying that, oh, she's calling stuff like that. And I was saying that I like this weather. And she she, she kinda grabbed me. She was like, put some coat on or
2: something like that.
1: And uh, cause it's cold. And also there was
2: the weather, time. the language barrier, the four of them cramped in a one-bedroom apartment. And then walking around Boston, seeing skyscrapers up close for the first time.
1: And also, there was uh, that time when we were walking around and see a big building. And she was like, she said, when she looked up, she said, oh, the building kind of looked like it's about to fall on her. So that was kind of like a funny time we had together. But I had
2: some good time with my mom. It was all a part of Benin's dream. Reuniting with her husband, providing opportunities for her kids, learning English, she was doing all of that. In just the three months she was in this country, she was succeeding and making new friends. Good morning. Am I interrupting your breakfast? Hey, look, at you, Sharon. How, How are you? Good, nice to see you. When I saw that connection
3: between us, I was, okay, so let me try to help. So whatever that I can do, I do. I don't say That's, a that's Nicole
2: Albert, affectionately known as Miss Nicole. She has a warm energy about her, the kind of person who might hug you the first time you meet them instead of just shaking hands. Her kind eyes sometimes get lost behind her glasses. She's one of the first people Benin met in Boston, a fellow Haitian immigrant who founded the Gilbert Albert Community Center, which is where I tend to meet with the family for our interviews. In a promo video on the Center's website, Ms. Nicole explains that she never set out to create a nonprofit; It just sort of happened. She kept meeting Haitians who were new to Boston and struggling to acclimate. She remembers one woman in particular who had never cashed a check before and needed help.
3: And I called her, come, I'm going to help you. Next week, you won't have this problem. You will be able to cash your check. So let me help you. She got her bag and everything. I drop her home and ask her, this is my address. You come to my house tomorrow, same time, I'll be able to help you cash your check. You will sign your name and then boom, we'll cash your check next week. So don't worry about that. Miss
2: Nicole's center has been a mainstay on Washington Street for almost 20 years now. White stickers are plastered on the front door with the word welcome in a half dozen languages. Miss Nicole's three sons are grown and out of the house, so she pours herself into her work and the people who spend time there, like Benin did. She says Benin was social and eager to learn English. She wanted to become a nursing assistant.
3: She's always the last student to, to leave the school because she's trying to do something. Miss Nicole, you are doing too much for the community. You don't need to do all of this by yourself. I'm going to help you. I'm coming on Saturday. So that's all the type of
2: person she was. The community center was like a foothold in her new country. Benin would insist on sticking around to help clean or organize. Miss Nicole would try shooing her away and in turn insist on offering Benin free English classes.
3: This is what I knew from her. Miss Nicole, because I was there myself doing some work in the office. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm here at school for free. I can come and help you. I'm coming back. And then she came back, with, Jeff Stay with her, starting to touch at everything. I'll do that for you. Let me do it. No, 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 no. Don't. You know, she was so open.
2: They were developing a friendship, a connection that Miss Nicole still feels with Benin's family, a bond that was cemented when Benin was killed just across the street from the community center.
3: Like, when I get the news, I was like, what? And then I remember the exact time, day, the moment that I saw her that active person, but always enthusiastic. She has a smile on her face, and that's what she she, she leaves to her kids. Since that day, the incident, that the, the, uh, the killing happened right there, so I get connected with the family. So, like, everybody expecting that I do something. And myself, have, my stomach was so tight, I couldn't sleep for days, I couldn't, like, figure out, and then find a word to share with those people.
2: At some point, Miss Nicole transformed that nagging feeling in her stomach into action. In the aftermath of Benin's killing, Miss Nicole helped the family navigate meetings with law enforcement, interviews with the press. She would interpret and advocate, research and fundraise. She's driven to help get justice answers around who killed Benin, but that drive also carries a heavy weight. The first time we sat down, Miss Nicole handed me a manila folder thick with paperwork. The records she's preserved for Andre ever since Benin was killed. The police incident report, copies of the death certificate, correspondences between Andre and the lawyers who've taken up the case over the years. Some of the documents are so old at this point that the ink is blurred, making them difficult to read today, within sight of that SKB convenience store on Washington Street and the broken pieces of Benin's family, the English classes continue at Miss Nicole's Community Center. (laughs) With people using song and laughter to learn, there's joy. (laughs) Maybe Benin once played the game, too. Maybe she was humming the song, practicing her new vocabulary while she walked down the street that Saturday afternoon in 2016, right before she was shot. We'll never know what was going through Benin's head, but we're going to try to answer a few other questions. And so, so is it safe to assume that at that point someone had, was deceased on scene?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. it's a homicide. Um... And this is even before the the ambulance has arrived. The
2: ambulance hadn't even arrived.
0: Yeah, and then whoever, I'm assuming this is your victim, the woman, she's dead.
2: I wonder, you know, what your take is on how the case is being handled?
3: And over the years, even for myself, it's really frustrating because we tried to get in touch with some of the police detectives that were on the case. We tried to get in touch with a victim-witness
2: advocate, nothing happened. We'll listen to theories about what happened that day.
1: I want this thing to come to a conclusion because in my heart, somebody from the police killed this woman. Uh,
2: Accidentally? Yeah, accidentally. So so the the rumor is that... We'll sit down with the Boston police and share new information with Benin's family.
1: Like, it would be nice to get some closure, like find out what happened, stuff like that. We get some justice, it would be nice, but that part still gonna, it's not gonna like f- all filled up all the way. That would never, I don't think that will ever happen for that part to be like fully like full. That that whole spot, like that whole space was like literally for my mom. And then she was, she's just gone. There's nothing that can replace that.
2: When closure goes missing, you try to pick up other pieces about your loved one, pieces of information, details that matter. That's next time in Part 2.
0: This episode of Last Scene was reported and written by Shannon Dooling. It was produced by Shannon and myself, Norris X. Monica Campbell is our story editor. Mix, sound design, and original music composition by Paul Vikas. Production help from my WBUR podcast teammates, Emily Jankowski, Matt Reed, Dean Russell, Henry Sievertson, Megan Cattell, Quincy Walters, and Grace Tatter. Our digital producer is Megan Cattell. Ben Brock Johnson is our executive producer. And a big thanks to Jeb Sharp for her guidance on editing this series early on. You can find all of our stories and show notes at WBUR.org slash LastScene. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at LastScenePodcasts. Remember, you can always pitch us your story ideas about people, places, and things that have gone missing by dropping us a line at LastSceneWBUR at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with part two.